0: This is Anthony areno and you're listening to In the Arena. Stay- I spent four or five years in Toastmasters learning how to speak professionally. It was a transformational experience for me, and I'd always had the confidence to stand up and speak, having spent most of my young adult life fronting a rock and roll band and playing in bars before I was even old enough to be in those bars. But a couple of years ago, after I was already speaking professionally, Michael Port, a speaker who I was familiar with but didn't really know, launched a program in what I will call here his life's work. This program is called Heroic Public Speaking, and one of the first videos Michael sent out to promote the program was a list of 50 common mistakes that speakers make, and I took a look at the video and I downloaded the PDF that came with it, and then I saw the first rule. Don't point at people. Guilty as charged. Instead, you're supposed to gesture with your hand. Who knew this? I didn't know this. I'd never even heard such a thing before. When someone introduces you, start speaking immediately. The audience is already looking at you and the show has already begun. So, the last speech that I gave before watching Michael and his wife, Amy Port's first video, required me to walk about 30 yards to the center of a massive stage. And I did so in this awkward, awful, uncomfortable silence. And it wasn't only awful for me having to walk all that distance in silence. It was awful for the audience. It was terrible. I didn't know that no matter where you are, you start speaking, but I learned that. And I thought, this is what's on the free videos. What in God's name is in the program? This is great content. So if you've never seen Michael speak You've never seen a preternatural speaker who can give you an experience like none you have ever seen. I promise you that it's amazing to watch Michael speak. And if you want to be a great speaker, you're going to want to work with Michael and Amy Port, and you have an opportunity to do that now at Heroic Public Speaking. You're going to learn how to perform and you're going to be transformed. You're also going to massively upgrade your content and you're going to learn the business of speaking. There is no better speaking program anywhere on earth, and there are no two better teachers. So go now to HeroicPublicSpeaking.com forward slash live and sign up for the October 31st Heroic Public Speaking in Fort Lauderdale. You're going to meet amazing people. You're going to have an amazing experience. You're going to be transformed, and you're going to be the best speaker that you can possibly be, and Michael and Amy will make sure of that. Don't miss it. I tell the story of how I met Phil Gerbyshek in 2010, I believe, at SobCon on this podcast. So there's no reason to talk about that here. Let's just say Phil is a speaker and a trainer. He does a lot of work around social selling. He's a unique guy. When you go to his website, you're going to see him wearing his orange frames on his glasses. He's published five books. He can tell you how to use Twitter. He's been interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Financial Times, He's really good at networking. Everybody in the world knows Phil. And if you don't know Phil, after you listen to this episode of In The Arena, you will know Phil. He called me, he was gonna interview me, and I interviewed him. So this is a back and forth of me interviewing Phil and Phil interviewing me in the arena. Hey
1: everyone, today's a fun treat. We're doing double duty today. I get to talk to my buddy, Anthony Anarino. Anthony and I have actually hung out in person. We've known each other online, but we've never really had a conversation. And yet, we certainly run in the same circles and share a lot of the same smart people that we know in common and have a lot of the same philosophies on sales and building community and stuff like that. So what's up, Anthony?
0: Good morning, how are you? I'm really good. Now I have to introduce you to mine because we're taking this audio and we're gonna give it to both audiences. So Phil is a speaker, a trainer, Taking off in the NSA world because I've been watching you carefully there. I'm going to ask you questions about that. And I think the most interesting thing about Phil is his energy. And we're going to talk about that too because Phil has a lot of energy and it's a lot of positive energy. And I remember where we met and I remember when we met. And it was SOPCON 2010. So that's a, a long time ago now. It was Chicago. And I can't remember the name of the building that we were in, but I remember meeting you there. And everybody knew Phil. That's where we met. That's what I remember.
1: It was the night before SobCon. We we're upstairs. We we're at the Paul University. And we were at the Social Media Club Chicago Mixer before SobCon. That's, right. That's right. Yep. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it either.
0: <laughs> That's a good memory. And yeah, everybody knew Phil. And so people wanted to make sure I knew Phil. And they said, You got to meet Phil while you're here.
1: Same with you, man. You were
0: one of those people, like,
1: you got to meet Anthony. Absolutely, buddy. So it was good that we got, what, almost six minutes together, I think. So that was impressive.
0: Probably, but that's that kind of event where you're just really from one person to the next. Exactly. Tell me why were you at SobCon then?
1: Well, why was I at SobCon at all is I was the first speaker at the first ever SobCon. I didn't know that. Uh, Yep. So I was featured in a book in 2006 called What Nobody Ever Teaches You About Blogging and Podcasting by Ted Demopoulos. Because of my ability to build community and get people to know me, and if you're watching the video, it's in air quotes. Get people to know me because I met a ton of people and I never, ever, ever met them in person. And then I talked about that and how that works and how to build community, leaving comments on blogs. This is pre Twitter, folks, pre LinkedIn. Really, I was on both of those very early, but nobody else was. I was talking to myself. I mean, you would I would send out a tweet back in 2006, and it would be like. Hey, how's everybody today? And it would be like I was talking just to Anthony because there were seven of us online. Yeah. And it changed from there. But yeah, so I spoke. And then every year after that, I came back and had some small part uh, Liz Strauss and Terry Starbucker, Terry St. Marie, good friends. They're the founders. And they said, hey, you know, you should come back. And I lived in Milwaukee. So it was easy. It was my favorite conference. I could come down. It was 90 minutes away. I could take the train. I could take a bus. I could drive. Real easy. It was a great opportunity for me to meet people. Beyond the blog, you know, just meeting people for real and talking to them. And then the social media club thing that Thursday night, always before SobCon that we had, like the last four years of SobCon, was interesting because a lot of those folks didn't end up going to SobCon. So I got to meet other people that didn't even go to SobCon. So it was really cool. And it was an opportunity to to really expand my network and to understand what other people are doing because. As a business blogger, and I've always been talking about either business or self-help. I would say, you know, productivity, leadership, sales, marketing, any of that, really in the business space, it really opened me up because we had knitting bloggers, we had people that were writing about their hobbies, their passion. One of my first friends was Jesse Peterson, who wrote Gitter's Wow Blog about the world of Warcraft. And now he's this amazing WordPress designer. But back then, he live blogged my session on Gitter's Wow Blog about Who's this guy? And what's he doing? And I thought this wasn't going to be any good. And he actually taught me something. So it's interesting how things had changed. And yet, really, they're all the same. It's all about people.
0: Yeah, it's too bad about Subcon. That was one of the conferences where nobody was pretentious. I mean, no matter who they were, they were totally approachable. And you could show up and you could have a conversation about what's working what's not working, where's the space going and things like that. And that, that was one of the few places I found where people were really open to having that dialogue and just sharing wide open whatever you wanted to know.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. That, w- that was the best part. Absolutely. Because, well, and I think the reason everybody wasn't pretentious is there was only at most 150 people in the room and everybody had the same focus. And that was to really grow their influence and their impact online in a non-pretentious way, in a different way, because everybody is a little bit different. And that's the beautiful thing about a conference that's that intimate, that is never going to get to 1,000 or 40,000 people, that you can be that vulnerable and raw. You don't have to front.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I miss that. I mean, I thought that was one of the best places to go to actually meet real people.
1: Yeah. I do too. I do too. Liz is coming back though. Liz has got a book coming out in the fall and I'm pretty jacked about that. That should be nice to see. So.
0: Yeah, I would like to see that too. And maybe we'll see another conference in the future. Let's hope so. You're, you're seeing a lot of conferences. So I've just taken over your podcast. I'm interviewing you straight. <laughs> up. <laughs> That's um, okay. I'm interested as an NSA member, I don't get to go to the conferences frequently enough. And it's specifically because mostly I'm working and the dates always conflict. I tend to be somewhere else far away and can't get to the conference. But you've been deep in NSA now. You've been teaching and training and presenting there. Tell me what that's like for you and what you're doing with that group. What did you do? I know you did something in this last event. What was it?
1: Yeah, so we'll start most recent and then we'll work back. I did Lookers to Bookers, helping people create websites that actually gets them booked as a speaker. It's very different. A lot of businesses, they might have multiple things going on and a lot of businesses feel that they need to have multiple focuses on their homepage. And I can tell you that if you have multiple focuses, it just means people aren't going to click anything. And then they're going to have to bump back into you. They're going to have to read a blog article. They're going to have to kind of back into your goodness. And as a speaker, really, the number one thing that you want is you want to get booked. You want to get hired. You want people to know you're a speaker. And that seems really obvious. But it, here's it, what happens: it, it's
0: know. not though. I mean, and I, I can tell you, my bookings started going up when I had to get really blatant and say. I'm a keynote speaker for sales conferences. I mean, you have to go out and tell everybody first. That's the first thing. Or they go, oh, okay. And they are confused and they move right past that part of what you want, that call to action.
1: Yeah. If you don't have video on your homepage, you obviously can't be a speaker. I mean, that's the first thing that people miss. You know, how good are you? So I called the seven deadly sins and I walk through those with all the NSA folks. And you mentioned my energy. I'm just like that on stage. So I'm straight up honest. Tell people, you know, I had people, Hey, so what about flash on your website? Well, it's not 2010. So you should say no. (laughs) Like, what about music that starts? Well, that I'm looking on my mobile and you're going to tick me off. So no, right. Like things like that. So what about a welcome video where I walk onto your website? I'm like, how does that look on your mobile phone? How does that, you know, how does that help anybody? That just looks cheesy. So I'm completely honest with people. I'm not pretty honest. I'm completely honest. So that's what I did. And I think that really is my gift to NSA is that I'm not pretentious. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you straight up what works. I mean, I've worked with tons of speakers. I coach I train. I, I do that. Started out kind of accidentally because, you know, I've been speaking professionally for a long time. So I, I yeah. think
0: Mickey's stuff is really, I think it detracts specifically because as a speaker, people want to see your delivery and they want to see you have content. And the gimmicky thing's not going to give them that. It's going to give them a different opinion of you, probably, that you don't want. And it's probably going to affect their ability to hire you, especially for high-paying gigs.
1: Yeah. Even for low-paying gigs, though, you, me- you mentioned content, right? That-, that shows you're good. That's really important. So you- yeah. I'm not telling you you need a blog with a million articles like you've got, Anthony. But I am saying you have to show that you have some domain of expertise because what's going to happen is you're going to have to talk for more than your 50-minute slot. They're going to want to pre-screen you. They're going to want to post-screen you. They're going to want to understand more. It used to be that being a professional speaker, you could be a one-trick pony. If you had a 50-minute show, that was great. You could be an entertainer. And then maybe you'd be able to expand it to 90 minutes. But now... You might need to do a pre webinar and a post webinar. You need to do your session. Oh, yeah, by the way, you got to do a breakout session. We want an article for our newsletter. We want a pre conference video that gives people a taste of your energy. Oh, by the way, did we mention that you're going to have to meet with sponsors? We're going to do some q And now, if you don't have at least a 10 hour domain of expertise, you're not any good to anybody. And certainly, don't get me wrong, there are still some celebrity speakers that are one trick ponies, but they've built their audience. 50 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and that's not happening anymore with anybody new.
0: I was sitting at an event, about 2,200 people, and I'm sitting next to the chairman and CEO of the company that hired me. And they bring in a speaker who's really, really well-known in that country, not well-known in the United States. And she's got a great story. She's got a great speech. She literally walks in... I'm going to call it 25 minutes before she's supposed to go on. So she hasn't shown, you're already nodding your head like, yep, I know where this story's going. <laughs> she hasn't been engaged or involved with anybody. And she sends her representative out to ask the chairman and CEO to come and meet with her in the green room while she's getting ready. And he just sends the person away. He's already unhappy because she hasn't been involved in the conference at all, even though it's, this is a big ticket person. He paid a lot of money for her. She walks on the stage. She delivers a really, really good speech. And then she turns around, walks off the stage, out the door, into a car, and she's gone. And he leans over to me and says, she'll never speak at another conference for me again. And I'm going to tell as many people as I can about my experience. And that's really, I think, the bar now for a speaker is we're hiring you to be part of this. And if you're not going to be part of it, then we're going to have a very different relationship. And what he said to me is she transacted me. You know, she collected the check and came in and walked out. That's just not the role for speakers now, in my view. I mean, yeah. it, the, the bar is where you set it. You're going to be doing a lot of stuff all around an event and you're going to participate if you're going to be any good at this at all.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Most of the time, they're hiring you to be part of the experience with folks. They want you to talk to people, which, you know, frankly, that scares a lot of people. A lot of speakers are actually introverts, and they don't want to do that, or they book themselves so tightly that they must do that. And okay, if that's what you're doing, and that's how you're making your money now, I guess milk that cow till it's dead. But most organizations, they want you, really, they, they almost want you as staff on. They yeah. want you to augment their staff for a little while.
0: That's right. Tell me about the work that you're doing helping salespeople think about using the toolkit.
1: Yeah, the social toolkit, absolutely. So, salespeople they prospect, they do research, they prepare, hopefully for their sales calls. Then they're engaged during the call, and then hopefully, after hopefully
0: they prepare. Hopefully,
1: yeah. Well, hopefully, yep. I say I always have to say hopefully, right? I'm with you, Anthony. I wish everybody did. I wish this was table stakes. It's not, but it really is if you really want to make sales. So the before, during, and after social makes that so much easier. I mean, LinkedIn and the social CRMs, the fact that Microsoft bought LinkedIn, if people aren't paying attention to that, that's really going to change your sales game. And so you need to embrace that. So I'm trying to teach first the mindset, because unfortunately, the mindset still isn't there. We have a lot of people who are unwilling to embrace that, who made money a long time ago, who are now are slowly tapering out of the business, hopefully faster than they expect, because they're not adding value. They're just transacting, to use your word. So that's a problem. And I, so I teach that. I teach that mindset first. And then it is important to understand how to use the tools, not for the tool's sake, but how to use the tools to do the things that you need to do. So, for instance, you know, it used to be you could drop off a brochure with a prospect and they'd ooh and ah over the brochure or you'd show up and throw up everything that you knew in a sales presentation. And frankly, because there was no other way to get information, they would have to take that meeting. I mean, if I was making a decision about software to buy, when I was a VP of IT, I had to sit through 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 of these show up and throw up meetings with 10, 20, 50 executives doing a demo, which is really here's 46 slides of why we're so great. I don't know squat about you, but here's why I'm awesome. Did I mention I've got great software? So you should use us. And there was no information. It was like buying a car. It sucked. Well, the game's changed. So now I want to see who is this person? Anthony, if you're selling me software, I'm going to research you. I want to see. So how long have you been at that organization? Why are you there? Have you just jumped? Every 12 or 18 months to a different company because, you know, as a salesperson, the reason you jump every 12 or 18 months is because your ramp is 12 months and then six months they taper you out and then you go somewhere else because you're not making quota, which means you're not solution based. It means you're just showing up and throwing up. You're just giving crap that nobody wants, that you have no customization, no reason why I'm going to buy this. So why should I? And that doesn't happen as much as it did. And this next wave, I don't even want to call it a generation because this is not a millennial thing. Nobody wants to buy your crap. They all want to fix their problem. So you got to think about that. So I teach all of that and how to use social to do that, right? How do we engage in between meetings? I'm going to add you to LinkedIn and we're going to have some conversation. Maybe I've got a couple articles that are actually useful. Wow. There's a concept, right? Maybe the marketing team, maybe you wrote some good articles in plain English, not in jargon, not some, here's a white paper that's 46 pages, black, that doesn't work. So how do you break that down, right? If salespeople think about it, I mean, salespeople for years have been, they have to take the 46 page white paper and turn it into a thousand useful words anyway. So why not just write an article about that? Why not do a video? Why not interview a customer? Why not interview a thought leader like Anthony or me and say, well, you know, Anthony and Phil talked about this. So it's not just me that says this is good, but so does somebody else. And you should think about that. So all of that, right? How to have a podcast. And again, I'm sure salespeople are thinking, are you kidding me? Like I'm a salesperson. I'm not a marketer. Well, you've always been a marketer and you've always been in sales and marketing has always been sales. I mean, if you need to transact business, like get off your butt and make some stuff happen. Make a real connection. Don't just transact with me because otherwise it's lowest cost. And then I don't care.
0: What's interesting to me is that when you look at LinkedIn and I've won in one business, I own a million dollar client using LinkedIn. And the reason was that the prospect that I was reaching out to, I knew we could create value for him because I knew where his business was. You know, because you can see, I could see their growth. I could see what they were hiring for. I could see that they were at an inflection point with money coming in. I could see all these things because it's visible now. That used to be really, really difficult information to come by. But he was able to look at me and see that I was somebody worth talking to. And the decision that he made was that this person is worth having a meeting with. And I think that. I tease sales audiences and tell them, you only need two things to be a trusted advisor. And I ask them what it is and they throw out all kinds of words, but you really only need two things, trust and advice. And if I can't see you because you're invisible and your history doesn't show me anything, then I have some problem with trust. And if you're never sharing anything of value, I mean, and you have to give value away, then it's very hard to have the advice part. So I look at you and I say, oh, this salesperson has their resume out here, but They don't have content from their company. They don't tend to have a point of view about anything. They're not contributing any kind of dialogue or any kind of ideas to the dialogue that's going on. And so I get a different view of you. And I think you're right. What's changed for salespeople is you do have to be a marketer now. And when I look at marketing organizations, they're not equipping their sales force to have these conversations because they're so afraid of sharing information. I've got to get your email what kind of CRM system you have, what your revenue is, what your title is, what your phone number is, before I give you a white paper. That's mostly all on the internet anyway, if I want to go and dig for those ideas. So it's held so closely. Nobody can see that you've got value because you won't let them share it. You just have to share it freely and accept that by sharing it in your point of view, you're going to be able to differentiate yourself and start a conversation. I just see LinkedIn mostly, and even up to like C-level executives in sales and marketing, it's their title. And there's not even a description. And so somebody's looking at you, you connect with them and they look and they think, I do, do I even accept this? Because I can't even see anything interesting about this person that would make me want to connect with them.
1: Yeah, I see that all the time. I actually, I can tell you that I know organizations where some of the executives have two different LinkedIn profiles, one with their work email and one with their personal email, one with three connections, one with 12, and then they wonder why none of their salespeople are embracing social. It's like, okay, you're not leading by example. It's very simple. If you're not taking the time as an executive to build out your profile, why would your sales team? Why would your your marketing team is getting the clear signal? You don't value this. You're not going to invest in it. So why the heck should we? And that's a shame because frankly it's not just that salespeople are telling you to use LinkedIn because we want you there for competitive intelligence. I want you there because you can use it as a recruiting tool. I can tell you that cool people want to work with other cool people. Innovative people want to work with other innovative people. So if you're not taking advantage of the fact that you have some innovation and you're willing to share a little bit of that, maybe your mindset, you don't have to share how to make the donuts. But you do have to share some of that mindset and why you care and why you're proud to work where you are. Otherwise, people are looking at you like, is this just another transaction? Am I just going to work there for two or three or four years? I'm not going to get any training. Nobody at the top is ever going to give a crap about me. And yet, I'm just going to give you my heart and soul and work my butt off? Nah, I don't think so. I, I don't know that I want to do that. Instead, I want to work with Anthony. I read Anthony's blog. I like Anthony on LinkedIn. He shares great stuff. He's on Twitter. Holy crap, man. This guy's a wealth of information. And now I'm like, wow, maybe we can collaborate. And if I could learn at your feet, I would want to do that because ultimately, this is not my final stop. This is not where I'm going to end up. I'm not taking this job because I'm saving up for the gold watch, folks. You notice I don't wear a watch. I don't need your gold watch. I don't care, right? I've got my smartphone. This is audio, but
0: they're going to miss the dance move that you threw That's
1: in. it. Yeah, you saw a little, yeah, a little Carlton there for you. Yeah. Yep. Doot, doot, yep. But uh, yeah, that's the thing, right? I don't have a watch on, on purpose. I don't care. I don't want your gold watch. It's not valuable anyway. It's got your stupid logo on it. The only way that I'm going to wear your watch or wear any of the stuff is because I'm proud to work there. I'm proud to say, this is the company that I give my life to.
0: Yeah. And I don't think that we do a good enough job enabling that story to be told either. We're still in business, I think, too transactional, too focused on quarter after quarter. I want to talk about one more area of your expertise, if that's okay. So networking, that's something you're really, really good at. And I think you sort of started early on talking about how to build your network and how to find value in that. Where is that right now? Outside of LinkedIn, what other things should people be thinking about to expand their network and really to develop relationships of value?
1: Yeah. Well, absolutely. Beyond LinkedIn is important. LinkedIn is not the first tool to build a relationship. A lot of times, it's a great tool to do research, but it's not a first tool because if you're going to give me your network, which is really what you're doing in LinkedIn, if you, you and I connect, Even if you block the fact that people can't dig into your contacts, they can still, if they pay for it, they can still contact everybody in your network. So don't be fooled into thinking that that's safe. But anyway, so beyond LinkedIn, right? So first, it's about getting offline. Really important. You have to show up at other events. Use Meetup. Meetup is a great tool where you can share some stuff. Facebook groups are absolutely incredible for shared interests. So you might say, well, I don't really want to share much of my life on Facebook. Well, that's okay. But then find a group that you're passionate about. Find a group around you that you can join. Find a group around a solution that you can get behind. Find a book that you're interested in. If you're watching the video, you can see Anthony's got a couple hundred books behind him. I can tell you if I give you a tour of my office, I'd have the same. Most of the time, not everybody's a reader, but the people who are, are passionate about it. So find a book that's in common, find a reading group, find a local group. You know, I live in Hyde Park in Tampa, in the Hyde Park village. We have the fountains here. Every first Sunday, we have a market. And I can tell you, I show up and I try my best to network and meet people that are local to me because, you know, local people can still refer business, even if you're a, a global person, even if you travel the world and do things because you never know. I mean, we've got some big business here in Tampa. So in-person really matters. And then taking those connections back online. So I showed up for a social media day last year here in Tampa. I didn't know anybody. I had been here five or six weeks only, didn't know a soul in Tampa. I got to meet a bunch of people because I showed up in person. And now this year, when I came back a year later, because a lot of these people have been following me online, now we're old buddies. It's like Anthony and I, we've never had a conversation until today. We had six minutes before, but because we met in person, now we can stay connected. We stay connected online. And now when we get this, now it's rich. Now we're talking about real stuff. and, And that's how it is. So, Meetup is a great tool. As I said, Facebook groups are really good. Twitter is okay. The challenge with Twitter is there's so much broadcast and so little conversation. That unless you get involved in a Twitter chat, it's really hard to get connected. But if you use Twitter chats, so for those that don't know what a Twitter chat is, it's a hashtag and a word that's your topic and usually the word chat. So hashtag sales chat, hashtag media chat, hashtag podcast chat, whatever it is. And it's a conversation around a a similar idea because really networking is you and me and then an idea that we want to talk about. And that's what's in common. It's not you and me that are in common, because if you and I are already in common, we're already friends. We're already connected. But it's something else. So we need to think about what's that external thing? What's that thing that you and I are going to unify to either build up, tear down, or at least discuss that we can have something in common? Because if we don't have shared energy around something, we're not going to connect. So that's the other tools that I would recommend. And then really, email is still a great tool. If you're thinking, boy, I'm just going to send people messages on LinkedIn. Well, you're sorely mistaken. If you, once you're connected to someone and you have their personal email, almost never do I recommend using LinkedIn to email someone. Instead, find their email address and then contact them that way. Because you know what? Not everybody goes to LinkedIn every day. And LinkedIn, frankly, they eat those emails. I don't get notified on every message. They send me a digest like once a day at some random time of people that might have done that of contacted me and maybe I see it and maybe I don't because a lot of times it ends up in spam. Instead, go to Anthony's profile, look at his email address and send him an email that way and send it a value, not just, hey, I'm checking in. Well, you're an idiot. Why are you checking in? I don't have time for a check in add some value. Find out what's
0: up. Never tell anybody to go and email me. (laughs) That's my whole Sunday and Wednesday is just trying to clear out the email. But you're right. You know, what's interesting about email is you know somebody got it because this device is in their left hand mostly, no matter where they are. So, you know, whatever you sent it got through. And if you don't get a reply back, that was you because they did receive the email. There's no question about that. Are you familiar with Dunbar's number? Yeah. The rule of 150. Sure. Yeah. You know, what's interesting to me about that is you talk about real life. And I believe this strongly that relationships have a very high price. So you have to give your time, you have to give your energy, you have to give your emotional energy. So there's this maintenance cost with having relationships and as you were talking it just it makes me think Dunbar's thesis is is that the number of folds in your brain you know after studying primates is what allows you to manage about 150 relationships and he studied you know all kinds of apes to figure out what that is and people who are really really good at it can handle something like 225 at the top end But we're not just using our brain anymore to do that. So now we're using a different substrate. We've got chips and we've got this off-board memory, this outbrain now that's not inside our skull that can handle so much more maintenance of relationships. And so I think where I see the value for the social tools personally is I can't maintain a relationship with 60,000 people. It's too many people to have a relationship with. But I can nurture those relationships and stay front of mind and contribute value and invest in those because of the social tools. And so, the way that I think about this is the toolkit now is enabling us to manage far greater relationships and to create value for more people on a much larger scale than ever before. And also to be relevant when it's necessary for you to be relevant. So, there may not be a reason for us to talk for some period of time. Or even from a sales perspective, if we want to look at commercial relationships, there may not be a conversation for us to have, but the connection can still exist. And I can continue to feed that from the sort of one-to-many marketing that social allows. But when it's time for that relationship to change, I can get one-to-one really quick because I've maintained that relationship at some level. I haven't let everything go cold and just ignored people over a period of time.
1: Yeah, I I think that's a really great point is it keeps that ember Of possibility alive better than ever before. I mean, if I was going to write you a letter, or if I was, even if I'm going to fax you, which is old school and some organizations still have fax machines, even if I'm going to do that, there's a bit of a limit on that. I guess you can mass fax people, but frankly, it's hard to add value via fax machine. And it's really difficult. I mean, to be personal, if you're just mimeographing paper. So social makes that possible, not to mention by sharing a little bit of yourself and what you're thinking about and what you're working on, you then allow others to then heat that flame up and to crank that up in their own mind, which that primacy recency thing that we suffer from, right? The fact that, you know, I haven't talked to you in a year, 10 years, whatever, because of social, I feel like it hasn't been that long right? It has been, I mean, it's 2010, as you said, Anthony, but I remember that like it was yesterday when you and I met and that's because we stay connected. We spent six minutes together and yet we kept that alive, right? We became friendly. And that's Hand
0: over Twitter and, yeah. you know, I see your face in my stream of people that I have on a list every single day. So I, I see Phil, I see you every day, even though we might not have talked, I still get to see and I get to watch what you're doing.
1: Yep. And we get to share an emotion there right? Because we see, oh yeah, look at that. Anthony's working on this. Anthony's got a new book out. Really excited about, right? This is really cool, man. So I get to share that. And now one of the reasons that I do this podcast for me is because I then get to talk to smart people like you and share you with my world. Because now I'm going to take that small relationship and now I'm going to expand it to everybody. Because frankly, like you said, 150, 200 people that we can really be close with. But man, I know your stuff has got great value. I can share that then with my people. And now maybe somebody's going to hire Anthony. And now, right? So now that little flicker sometimes grows a little brighter because intentionally or not, I helped you and you helped me. And that's what it's all about.
0: Yeah. And it works better than ever. And by Absolutely. the way, this is my podcast, not your podcast.
1: Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> this is our podcast today, my
0: it's friend. A, it's our podcast today.
1: Yeah. So, talk about that new book, man. I mean, I'm excited. How? Do, first, I'm Jack. That you got what portfolio to publish yeah. this book? That's a big deal, man. So, how did that happen? How did that come about?
0: That's a fun story. I'm telling it on video right now on the pre-order page. Uh, just, I'd written the blog for about a year every day, and I started to get a lot of attention. And the first publisher that reached out asked me to pitch them a book. They said, "We want you to pitch us a book." And I said, "Okay, I can pitch a book." And I sort of wrote the skeleton of what this book is, and I shared it with them. And I I shared some examples with them of what the book would entail. And it was a pretty fully conceived idea because I'd been working with salespeople for a long time. But the publisher looked at it and said, I don't understand this book at all. I knew I was in trouble right then. He said, I don't get why... You have self-discipline and optimism and caring and resourcefulness in a sales book. The second half of the book is great with closing and prospecting and presenting and negotiating. We love that. But we don't know why you have all this other stuff at the front of the book. And I explained, some salespeople can have really good skills, but have very lousy mindset and what I would call character traits, so behaviors and beliefs. They're not disciplined. So, they're not going to do the prospecting that they need to because they're just not disciplined enough to block time and do those kinds of things. And I would look at salespeople and I would say, this person's got all the right attributes, but they have none of the skills. Okay, well, I can help give them the skills. Or they've got great skills, but they can't get out of their own way because they're not resourceful. They think that somebody has to give them an answer and they're not trying to figure things out on their own. They're not taking initiative. And I'd been working with that frame for some time and they hated it. They said, you know, you have this thing called level four value creation that would make a good book as a consultant. And then you would get a lot of consulting work and we'd like to publish that kind of a book. And I said, I'm not writing a book to get work. I'm writing a book because I want to share, you know, how to get better with salespeople and sales managers. And we parted ways. And then I had another publisher reach out basically and we're back to where we were. It was sort of how many books can you sell and how many will you buy from us in advance?" and I'm thinking, well, does it matter what the book is? And pretty much the answer is not really. It doesn't matter what the book is. We'll do whatever you want as long as we can talk about that. I just felt like that's not the right way to do it. So I was doing well. I was speaking 40 times a year. That's a lot of speaking and I'm international travel. And I just thought I don't really need to write a book, but people kept asking me to write a book and I decided I'll just publish it myself. And about six weeks before I was ready to hit the play button on Create Space. I'd already hired my own editor, had been through the whole process. They tweeted me. I got a tweet from the acquisitions editor who said, we don't understand why you haven't written a book. And I said, well, I have written a book. And they said, well, where is it? And I said, it's on CreateSpace. I'm launching it in six weeks. And they asked to have a conversation with me. And and they told me everything that they hated about the book, the title, that I needed to think these other ways. And I said, why don't you read the book? Give me all your advice and I'll make all the changes that I can And six days later, they sent me a two book offer and an advance and said, we did not expect to love your book and we totally get what you're doing. It's totally unique in the space and we want to talk to you. So that's how the portfolio thing happened. And it it is, I do think it's the only book of its kind. There's not another book on sales that you can go buy. That's as holistic to say, first, you have to be somebody worth buying from, and then you have to have the skills. So the character part comes first. And we're back to if you want to be a trusted advisor, you need to have the trust and you need to have the advice. You got to have both of those things together. Wow. Wow.
1: I'm sure. I mean, I've I've never read another blog like yours, Anthony, that has that holistic look. I mean, so much it's about tactics. It's about here's how to close, right? Grant Cardone, here's 5,000 ways to close somebody. Well, why are you trying to close me when you don't even know what I want? I mean, that sucks, man. I hate that. That makes my skin crawl. And I can't imagine being a sales guy like that. That that just it makes me sad. That would suck my energy. So when I look at what you're going to have, I mean, the only sales guide you'll ever need. That's pretty cool, man. But that's pretty bold. That's pretty ballsy. So how do you get away with putting it out there as the only sales guy you'll ever need?
0: <laughs> it's funny. I got one email that said exactly that. Like how arrogant of you to say. This is the only sales guy. First off, I didn't name the book. The publisher got to name the book. When you sell your book, they get input. The book was actually called 17 Elements: The Periodic Table of Sales Success because there's 17 elements in the book and they're like, "Wow, we hate that. That's not a great name." We had a great argument about that and they said the book really should tell people what they're getting. It should answer their question. And I said, "What about The Challenger Sale?" I mean, that's the biggest selling book in two decades in sales, maybe longer. Nobody knows what that means until Until they get into the idea, they said, that's a good point, but we're not going to take that point. We still don't like your title. So what they were trying to say with the only sales guide you'll ever need is that it's such a holistic view and it covers so much ground. It really covers all the bases. So it covers the attributes and the skills in one book that's 240 pages long. And that's what they were trying to convey with the title. And everybody that's read the book has said the same thing. This is like nothing else I've read. And it does cover A lot of territory yeah
1: well of course it does i mean your blog covers a lot of territory you're a diverse guy i mean you say you never set out to be a sales guy so how do you become a sales guy isn't that something you have from little on what did you want to do
0: yeah every seven-year-old kid's thinking about when i grow up i want to be a sales rep i want to aspire
1: to middle management (laughs) and i want to sell coffee
0: nobody says that no that's true i'm still supposed to be fronting a hard rock band That's what I set out to do, but I ended up in LA and I had to have a job while I was working, you know, playing music at night. And I had a manager who came to me who recognized I was already selling. I didn't know I was selling. I thought I was helping people. And while I was interviewing light industrial candidates, I'd look at where they worked and I'd start calling people to say, I know you use temps and a lot of people have trouble with that. Can I talk to you and see if there's anything I can do to help you? And people, some people would say yes. A lot of people would say no. And then I'd go visit some people, and some of those people would say yes. And I got this new manager, and he realized that the sales force that we had wasn't selling anything. And he showed up at my desk with a stack of papers with reports and said, whose clients are these? And I looked at the list, and I said, these are my clients. And he said, how did you get these clients? I mean, that that was with a lot of judgment in his voice, because I had hair down to my waist at the time. I'm fronting a hair metal band at night, and he he couldn't understand how I was doing something that the salespeople weren't doing. And he fired them eventually, and he pushed me into outside sales. And he made me cut my hair off, but only to shoulder length because I was in LA, so you could still have long hair in LA. (laughs) And I wore a suit. And immediately after he made me a salesperson, I became a bad salesperson. After I thought I was supposed to be selling people, I completely shifted gears and I started trying to do something to someone instead of doing something with and for someone. And it took that mindset shift for me over the course of six months to go, I was really good at going out and helping people. And now I suck at this. And it was my approach had shifted because somebody told me I'm supposed to be selling. When I just went back to figuring out where are people hurting? Where do they have pain? Where are they struggling with? And that's the only thing that I ever talked about. And I learned this from this manager. The only thing that people want to talk about are the three or four things that are important to them. And as a salesperson, if you can go in and help uncover those and help people solve them, they make it it's easy for them to buy from you. The more I just let go of I'm a salesperson, it just became easier and easier for me. And I won the largest account, won on the second half of the United States, my first year in sales for a company that was doing four billion in revenue. It was a $10 million dollar deal, one location. And I fell in love with the role. I mean, I got to really help people with their biggest business challenges. And that work is just so interesting. It's so diverse. It's so fun. I had an email from a client the other day that that said, think about how hard sales is and why people don't like it. You get rejected all the time. It's the only role in business where you're accountable for all of these outcomes. And he had this whole list of all the things that make selling tough for some people. And I sent him back a list like, think about the only role where you get to go out and meet new people every day where you get to help them with their biggest challenges, where you're rewarded financially and with recognition for doing something that is beneficial to you, to other people, to their company, to your company. And I listed all the things that are great about it. And when you start thinking about the consultative role that salespeople play now, it's a great job. It's a lot of fun. And if you're a problem solver and you like dealing with challenges, there's not a better place to be.
1: Interesting. So I agree. I think sales is the most noble profession. So why don't people get that, Anthony? I mean, if we're all in the process of helping people, I mean, ultimately, people say that their number one most rewarding thing about work is to know that they've made a difference. Yeah. And when sales is the thing that makes the biggest difference and shows the most measurable results of anything, and yet people still say, I'm not in sales. Why yeah. is that?
0: There's two things. I think one, the connotation of salespeople as egocentric makes people feel bad about themselves. And you talked about closing languages and closing people. The words that people have been taught to use make them feel bad about themselves. And nobody wants to feel bad about themselves. So when I say, Phil, do you want your new car in blue or in red? You're like, seriously? Really? That's the approach? And it's the old tie-downs, it's the language that we use, it's the self-orientation. Most people, as they grow and develop as human beings, lose the egocentric part of themselves and start to become first more community-oriented and then eventually, even like looking across all humanity, They start their consciousness starts to grow. And when you tell people, look, I need you to go back and behave the way that you were when you were eight or nine years old and try to get what you want by forcing people to give you what you want and changing your approach to them and being manipulative and trying to tie them down and doing all these things, people resist that because it makes them feel bad about themselves. And another reason I think salespeople struggle with it is that they're just not confident. And I think it's the confidence of believing that you have the ability to go make a difference. You have to really believe that I can make a difference, even though this is a challenging situation, even though three of my competitors have tried before me, and failed. You have to believe that you can go make that difference. Those are the two obstacles that I see most often.
1: So you, not only do you have to believe that, but you actually have to work for an organization where you can make a difference. Because some organizations I, I don't think are even equipped to make a difference. They just, they're like lichen on some of these things, on some business. I mean, they're, they're add-on things that frankly add no value and only add on cost and really more crap that they don't need.
0: I think that's true. You're right. I've seen salespeople struggle because they know what they're selling isn't the right thing for the customer. And then again, that's egocentric, right? And and from the business perspective, it says, what's important is that we get your money, not that you get something that benefits you. But most companies do try to do good work. I don't think that anybody has an easy time doing really good work now. I think the world's complicated. The economy's complicated. Right now, probably the biggest challenge is actually helping people. Answer the question, why do I have to change now? They feel all this dissonance. I can't get the results I used to get. I'm not sure what's going on. And then you say, well, we do know what's going on. And here's what you would do to change. And they go, oh, change. Are you kidding? I got to get all these people in a room together. We're all going to have to agree. Somebody's not going to want to do it. We're going to have all these arguments about it. I'll just continue to find another workaround to live with the devil I know because this devil I know pretty well and we've learned to live together. That's the hard stuff that we do. Wow. Yeah, I I see
1: that all the time. So talk to us about that mindset, right? That we have to overcome in order to be who we need to be. So how do we first kind of, what is that default mindset? And then secondly, how do we even start the wheels in motion to start thinking another way when we've been programmed that this is the way?
0: You've been programmed a whole bunch of ways. So the primary tool that I use is to help people decide to fear the right danger. So what happens for most of us as human beings is we fear something personal to us. So when I say, Phil, you're going to have to change, then you start to get this fear about, am I gonna lose the significance that I have? Am I gonna lose the certainty that I have right now? Are people going to judge me? How are we gonna have this conversation? Am I gonna lose my friendships here? What's my boss gonna think? And they go through all these things where the personal risk starts to play in. But that's not the danger. That's not the real danger. That's just an uncomfortable conversation. The real danger is if you don't change, you don't produce the outcomes that you're capable of. You don't serve your clients the way you should. You lose market share. You start to lose clients. You can't win new opportunities. You're commoditized. You start having your margin shrink all the time. And then you have less money and you get even more fearful about what you have to do. It all starts with us as human beings deciding we have to fear what's the greater danger the greater danger is not doing what's right and not helping as many people as we can and not creating better, the better results that we're capable of. And for a business, it's the same thing. The risks for you as a business of not changing are not having the difficult conversations. They're going to happen anyway. And when they happen because the ship is sinking, those conversations are a lot more emotional and you don't really have the time to deal with them. So as salespeople... You want to go before the ship is sinking and you want to start helping people say the real danger here is that you're about to hit an iceberg and we're going to have to turn this thing really fast to help you to do that. But that's really what it is. It all starts with fear.
1: Mm, Interesting. Interesting.
0: You were nodding in agreement. You're like, yeah, I know this one. Well, I don't know that I know that, but I think I agree
1: with it. And I haven't, I have not thought about that. That's very interesting. I don't know that one. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense because Fear is what drives us. Fear is what does motivate us to make decisions. So to fear the right thing helps us make the right decisions instead of just the fearful ones. So that makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. Fearing the real danger. Yeah. um, Instead of the risk that you have to take to have that conversation. That's mostly what it is. Conversations.
1: Yeah. No, that makes sense. So conversations, dude, you blog every day. How do you do that?
0: I sit down at this desk with this keyboard and I just start typing whatever comes out. And I've got a big list of things that I just notice. I'm a, I pay attention to what I see around me and I type it down. I mean, and I have people say all the time, I don't know how you do that. But if you're paying attention, there's just tons of things that are worth thinking about and worth typing or sharing or your experiences that you're having. I wrote something the other day about hiring somebody and having 400 resumes on my desk and not a single person called me. And I'm just looking at a stack of what are supposed to be sales managers and sales leaders, none of whom are willing to pick up a phone. And so you look at that stack and say, can I hire any of these people? I mean, none of them would pick up the phone and call me and say, I need an appointment with you. I'm your person. And that's what we would do in sales. We call strangers and we introduce ourselves and we find a way to make a difference. I'm advertising I have a problem. I'm saying I have a problem. But I thought that that's worth sharing with people in the sales community who are looking for work and who are sending the resume over career builder or Indeed and then waiting for something to happen. Waiting isn't a strategy when you're trying to sell something or when you're trying to get a job. That's not the right strategy. You got to be much more aggressive about it. So anything that pops up like that, I capture and I write. And I'm a writer. So for me, I can't not write. Some people say, I don't know how you can write. I say, I don't know how you can't write. There's so much to write about. Wow.
1: Where do you capture all those ideas? Are you using Evernote or do you capture them on your blog or do you have a favorite notebook or what?
0: I'm a Mac guy. So I use a program called Ulysses and Ulysses is a plain text editor and I love Evernote. It's a great file storage tool for me, but because of the formatting and it's not in plain text and because I don't know what's going to happen to Evernote in the future and whether I can get things back the way that I put them in, I like plain text editors. And then the files I can import into anything. So Ulysses is a plain text editor. It allows you to capture things into notebooks if you want to or groups and filter them by tags and it keeps a word count. So if you're a writer and you have a deadline like I do, I have a second book due December 1st and it needs to be 60,000 words. I can keep track of how many words I have towards my 60,000. So that's really helpful. It's a super cool program, especially if you can do any kind of markup writing. If you know how to do that, that's really helpful. But just having it in plain text means it goes with me wherever I go. I can open it in anything.
1: Mm. Yeah. So talk to markup language, what's that mean?
0: If you want to write in HTML so you can paste it straight into a blog, or if you want to write it in a format so that it's got bold and italics and links, you can just do that right in typing keystrokes. So you can just write it in the format that you eventually want it to be in. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Or it's a worthwhile skill set. If you're yeah. a, a publisher. Oh, yeah.
1: Yep. I just wanted to make sure I was clear on what that meant to you. So that's cool. So Ulysses, I've seen, I've heard of that tool. I'm nodding because I've heard of it, not because I've used it. So that's interesting. Have you used Scrivener? Is that compatible with Scrivener it's, at
0: all? it's very similar to Scrivener. I like it better than Scrivener. It's simpler and it's cleaner. I think when it comes to writing, less is more. What you need is a blank screen and a cursor. And I think Scrivener's just, it's very, very, it's an intense piece of software. I mean, there's so much going on in Scrivener. What I miss from Scrivener and Ulysses is the cork board with the index cards, which is a nice way to frame out what you're going to write before you write it. But I'm doing that just with files. So gotcha. close enough. Cool. Now Now we're into writing nerd talk
1: well, but we all need to make more content. I mean, that's the thing. So I talked about how I go beyond LinkedIn. So what about you, Anthony? What are you doing to go beyond LinkedIn and to make connections to make sales? What tools are you using or what tactics are you doing or things that are helpful for you?
0: I think LinkedIn is probably a really good starting off point for relationships. But like you, I don't think it's great after that. And what I recommend to salespeople I practice, I do the phone first. And I do email first if I can, and then I get to LinkedIn. So, a lot of people recommend doing it the other way. But if you're a sales guy, the speed of the interaction matters as much to me as other things. So, if I want to talk to somebody, I like the phone. I like the phone best, and I love face to face. So, for me personally, if I go anywhere, if I go to another city for a speaking gig, I go through my network and I see who I know in those areas so that I can meet them face to face. So I do a lot of that. I was just in London with my son for his high school graduation present. And I know people in London that I've never met face to face, some of them that I even have, I'm doing some work with. So I always carve out time on the calendar and reach out and say, let's get lunch, let's get coffee, let's get dinner. And that to me has been transformational in my results in the growth of my network and my ability to get things done through other people because I know people. And we have one friend in common that I can share a story about. That's Chris Brogan. He spoke at a conference that I was at for one of the businesses that I'm in. And he didn't know anybody there. Chris and I met at SobCon the same year you and I did. And we met because he sat down next to me and he asked if he could have some of my Altoids. He was getting ready to speak and I gave him the 10. And we've been friends since then. And you know, he's been so giving. You know how Chris is. If you ask for anything, he gives it to you but he was by himself at a conference. And I said, you know what? You're by yourself. You don't know anybody here. Let's get coffee. So that was like a two-hour coffee that spanned the conversation from community building, content creation, to Batman. I mean, you're with Chris, you can go a whole different, a bunch of different places. We had so much fun. We had dinner together after that. you know, And that's the kind of stuff, Then, and we've been great friends since then, but that's the kind of stuff, if you can get face-to-face, the relationship has transformed. And I think Younger people have this great toolkit that they're using with Snapchat and Instagram to communicate one to many, but you need to get one to one too. And so anything that I can do to get one to one faster works for me.
1: Yeah, I agree. I do that as well. I do my best to make those connections when I'm traveling to a city and I have more than a couple hours. I mean, I'll even post that I'm going to be at a certain airport at a certain time. And I bumped into people there. My buddy, Michael Johnson, was at the Atlanta airport at the same time I was, right across the hallway, you know, right across the whatever, the area that we're sitting to wait for the plane. And I get to give the guy a big hug. We got three minutes together. But I tell you what, the fact that we were intentional, the fact that we were able to collide and make that connection makes us even better friends.
0: I did the same thing in Charlotte because I knew it's where Jeff Gittimer lives. And I texted him, I'm in your airport, in your town. And he said, where are you? And I I think I said, I'm at B. And he said, go to the American Admiral Club. And that's the first time he and I ever met face-to-face is just by giving somebody a shout-out that you're in their town and you find out that they're available. It's good to meet people that way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But you have to be intentional about it. Accidental sometimes is fun, too. But the more that you can be intentional, the more those happen just naturally, right? We have to be willing to share that, be a little vulnerable because sometimes I post that up or I contact someone and it doesn't happen. And so that's okay, right? But yeah, well, you just kind of shrug, right? But a lot of people though, they don't want to be rejected, right? They're, they don't always have that sales mindset of, yeah, take the shot, take the shot, take the shot.
0: It's funny about rejection because I mean, it's rare that anybody ever actually rejects you. I mean, unless you were me as a teenage boy, and then rejection was part of your everyday life for sure. (laughs) Me too, man. Me too. It's rare that anybody rejects you. It's that they're busy. I mean, they don't say to themselves like, "Phil, I'm not going to have lunch with Phil." (laughs) They don't think that. They're just like, "Oh, my calendar." You know, it's it's not that you ever actually get rejected. I feel the same way, and maybe that's just being a sales guy. I'm like, well, they're just busy and they didn't get the value yet. I'll just try them again another time. It doesn't matter, you know. It's I think people, if you take that personally, it's really egocentric again. I mean, you're, you're thinking people sit around thinking about you like, I'm going to judge Phil. No, they're not judging you at all. They're just busy. <laughs> That's all. You got them at a bad time. So you try again.
1: Yeah. Don't take that personally, right? It's not no. that You're not personally being rejected. Unless they say, Phil, dude, I never want to have lunch with you again. <laughs> Just exactly. I mean that's what most of the women say so I am <laughs> used to that but yeah not so much my friends. So that's
0: <laughs> Yeah, that's different though. That's <laughs> totally. a different relationship.
1: That's absolutely right. So dude, another book though due December 1st. So can you tease us a little bit? What's next?
0: The next book is a book on commitment gaining. It's a closing book for grown-ups who can't use self-oriented language to ask for commitments and the teaser for this one is People think closing is that final commitment when I ask you to buy. And it's not. There are at least 10 commitments that you need to gain in a B2B sale. Like, Phil, can I have your time? Can we explore some ideas together? Are you interested in change? Are you committed to this kind of change? So we have to ask for all these different commitments. And where salespeople get in trouble and where human beings get in trouble is not knowing what commitment they need and not having good language to ask for it. And this book is a guide. It might be the only closing guide you ever need. Might be, huh? <laughs> it might be, yeah. We're having a discussion about titles right now. But that book will be August 8th of next year. It'll be out. So wow, we're, we're working on that one now.
1: You are a machine, my man. That is fantastic. Cool, cool. So you got to interview Rose Zander. <sighs> I listen to that. I have to say, man, I got to meet Benjamin a couple years ago at an event that he was speaking at and playing with one butt cheek. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. But you got to spend time with Rose. Talk to me about that. That's pretty cool, man.
0: She is amazing. And I haven't got to meet her face to face yet, but we're going to have dinner. We stayed on after that podcast and talked for about another half hour, or 45 minutes. I bet. And I, I had to go into my bedroom and tell my wife, I'm in love with another woman. I mean, I love her spirit I love her mind. I mean, she is just so, so smart and so helpful. And her books are so useful. I'm jealous that you got to meet Ben, but it's the same kind of thing. It's somebody who has this essence of who they are. That's so infectious and so great. I mean, it's like you're getting the experience of their soul and that's who and what she is. So it was an amazing experience. The after conversation was even better. I mean, I should have just left You know how you've done this before. You've done the podcast and then you've thought, oh, the best stuff happened after we stopped recording. That's how it was with Raj. She's just a brilliant woman. And so, so, I mean, just her soul just seeps right into you. It's amazing. One of my favorite podcasts I've ever done. That's so cool, man. That's so... And I'm sure cool. Ben was the same way.
1: Yeah, I didn't get a lot of time with him. I got to listen to him present and play some beautiful music and then got to shake his hand and thank him for the, the gift because his talk was, you know, The Art of Possibility truly transformative book, just really, really good stuff and is one of those things where if we really think about it, that's really what life's all about. Yeah. A bunch of possibilities that if we're playing wide open, that we can yeah. really get some great experiences.
0: That's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm jealous. I will. I'm going to try to meet him at some point in the future. Cool. He'd be a good guest.
1: Absolutely. He'd be a great guest. Totally. We should both see if we can get him. Maybe we'll do a little <laughs> three-way. We'll do a podcast that way.
0: That would be great. <laughs> he, he would be on the hot seat for sure.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny, man. Well, cool. So you spent all this time creating though, but you read a lot and you
0: showed me what is this that you're reading now and how oh is that? Gosh. How's that shaping you? It's so heavy. I mean, if, I'll reach back and pull the book up and hold it up on the screen, even though we're probably all audio here. The book is called Sex, Ecology, Spirituality, the Spirit of Evolution by Ken Wilber. And Ken is an American philosopher, and he created a theory called Integral Theory. And it really is a theory of everything, how everything in the universe is connected and how all of it works. And it's one of the most, I'm going to say, complete and cumbersome things that you'll ever read but it's prevented me from having to read all of the German philosophers because he's already read them and explains how they fit into cultural development. He's read all of the developmental psychologists like Robert Keegan, who I'm going to have as a guest on the podcast next week, and Carol Gilligan and Kohlberg and Piaget and all these people. And it's a framework called Aqual, which is all quadrants, all levels. So basically, it just explains how we develop as human beings internally and externally as part of a universe and as part of a culture. And it's such a useful tool for looking at your own personal development and growth and then where other people are so you can figure out how to help them. It's a great book. And the probably the most interesting thing is that there's no judgment. There's just no judgment in the book. Wherever you are on that spectrum, that's where you are and everybody goes through the process. So it's a super helpful framework. If you like psychology, and if you like philosophy, and if you like looking at how people operate. And as somebody who does what I do, I like to look at the operating system. What's underneath there? What's driving these things? Wow. That's really interesting. Not easy reading. I would say if anybody wanted introduced into Ken's work, I would recommend Cosmic Consciousness with a K. You can get it on Audible, and it's a 12-hour interview. And you'll get his spirit, and you'll get his sense of humor, and it's easier than reading a book like this. (laughs) Yeah, that's a commitment, huh? For sure. It it is a commitment. I went to law school, so I read legal decisions from the 1600s, 1700s. So those are no fun to read. That's not easy. This book is not easy to read. There's at least sections of it that aren't easy to read. Interesting. That's cool, man. What are you reading?
1: So what am I reading? Well, I'm almost through our friend Mark Hunter's book. High impact prospecting, high profit, high profit prospecting. Yep. So, yeah, it's a fantastic book. About halfway through that, working through that. I just downloaded Penn Gillette's new book on Audible, so I'm excited to listen to that. Penn is hilarious. I've seen him. I've seen him both do magic as well as speak. He's a very interesting guy. His biggest insight for me, I haven't listened to the book yet, but his biggest insight when I heard him speak, he spoke at the National Speakers Convention. A couple of years ago, and he said something that was really, really resonant for me. And that is, the reason that we get better is because we're doing it more often. So, we need more time in the saddle, whatever yeah. that is. Yes. So, And that was just a great wake up for me that the reason that I'm not getting better in some areas of my life is because I don't do it often enough. And it was just a reminder that just do what you love more even if it's not maybe giving the rewards that you like, because that's how you get better. And then eventually you will get rewarded for that. So I thought that was really good. I think those are, yeah, those are the two big ones. But I I often come back to Bob Berg's work. When I'm looking for inspiration, or I'm looking to be reminded of what's really important. I mean, the whole Go-Giver series is really good though. I'm going to embarrass Bob maybe a little here for those who are maybe going to watch the video. And that is, I've got Bob's, this is the first book I ever read from Bob. Wow. Yeah. Winning Without Intimidation. This is the- I've never
0: even seen that.
1: Yeah. So this book, this is the first book that I ever read. He actually, it got redone as his adversaries and allies, and expanded just immensely. But I read that book 15 years ago. That was my introduction to Bob Berg. And I have to say, just the language of positive persuasion that he talks about in that book is amazing. That's, again, you can get it in adversaries and allies. But I have that first book. I have adversaries and allies, too. I have everything Bob's ever done. In fact, really dating this, ready for this. So, I have the memory system from Bob Berg. Look at this picture of Bob. Wow. Yeah. So that's an old school picture of Bob. This was published in 1992, the year that I graduated high school. So yeah, but that's fantastic. So that was the only book that I I, didn't have of Bob.
0: I'm going to Trump you though.
1: Uh Oh, what you got?
0: I've got Bob Berg as the cover quote on my first book, the only sales guide you'll ever need. Bob wrote the quote that's right at the top of the cover.
1: All right. You win. How about that? That's awesome. Yep. Bob's incredible. He's the best.
0: Yep. I asked him and he said he would be honored to do it. And Bob's a great friend. Yeah. yeah and a, gr- a great thinker. I mean, the Go-Giver series for sure. Adversaries into allies should be mandatory reading. I mean, those are, you know, the book that I'm writing now is about transformational conversations And that's what that book is. It's how to have the difficult conversations and deal with obstacles and difficult situations. And it's brilliant. Yeah. Totally agree. Yep. I totally agree. But how do we get out of a podcast when there's two of us? Well, I
1: think how we get out of this is let's talk about some actions that people can take because I think that's important. The more actions, you know, the more positive actions that people do, the better. So I'm gonna let you start and give us a couple of actions that we can take to be better sales professionals.
0: Write a really good LinkedIn profile. Go, if you want, go look at mine, which I had professional help with, but look at a complete profile and make sure that people understand the value that you create on LinkedIn. That's that's number one. I, I think you should do that immediately. You want to make sure that when people find you, they can see you for the value that you create. And it doesn't look like a poor attempt at a resume. I think that if I could recommend anybody do anything else right now, I mean, we just talked about Bob Berg's book. I think pick something. It doesn't have to be Bob's book, Adversaries and Allies, but pick something that you can read that's going to help you transform yourself and pick something that's useful. I think it's very easy today to get caught up in all the distractions. And I'm watching people on Facebook. They're either upset about Trump. They're upset about Clinton. They're upset about a football player that didn't stand up for the the national anthem. They're upset about 11,000 different things. And you're just not going to get better spending your time on distractions like that. All those things, they they may be important. And if you go vote, and if you want to work for a candidate, work for a candidate. But beyond that, get out of the distractions and do something to improve yourself. And I think reading is probably the greatest ROI of anything. You can spend $9.99 on a Kindle book in six hours and have ideas that are worth millions of dollars. Phil's nodding in agreement.
1: Yeah, I love that. I mean, readers are leaders. And leaders are readers. You have to read and go deep, go beyond the blog posts, pick up a book that is valuable to you, that's gonna be valuable to others. Focus on your mindset, I think is really important, right? Get your head on straight. And then remember for me, the biggest action that I take every day is to always think outside of me first. So I focus on how I can connect every single day with my world. So for me, that starts with happy birthdays for people that I know, and I do my best to be as impactful as I can. Sometimes I call a little bit early. Apologies to my brother, Paul, for calling him at 5.30 a.m. on his birthday. I was so excited. to He turned 40 this year. So I love my brother, and I I forget that he's in Seattle. I thought it was later than that because it's later than that in the (laughs) Eastern time zone. But be intentional about those interactions Every single day, make those a priority. And I think that's the thing that's made me the most successful, and the thing that I see that makes other people successful is turn the focus outward first, and then you'll get what you deserve coming to you. Zig Ziglar said, We can get anything we want if we only help other people get what they want, kind of paraphrasing there, but that's really true. And if we remember that and we turn that focus out and we seek first to serve, we're going to be a lot better off than if we seek to be served first.
0: And a lot happier.
1: Absolutely. That's a nice byproduct, right?
0: It is. Cool. So, thanks so much for coming on my podcast.
1: Yes. And thank you, sir, for being on my podcast, Conversation with Phil. You're the rock star, dude.
0: All right. Good to see you. You too, brother. Okay. Here's what I like about Phil he's an entertainer. He's an entertaining guy. He's got a big, giant smile. He knows it's his job to get you to smile and to learn something, and he does that every time I see him. So that was Phil Gerbyshek. You can find him at philgerbyshek.com, G-E-R-B-Y. S H A K, and that will be in the show notes for you. Do go check him out and follow him on Twitter and all the other social sites. I am Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com where I publish a blog post about sales and management and leadership and success oriented ideas every single day. On Sunday, I write a newsletter, and you do want to sign up for that newsletter. When you go out to the website, you will be accosted by a pop up banner fill in your first name and your email address so that I can be in your inbox Sunday morning and I can help you get ready to start your week on Monday. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anna and facebook.com forward slash the sales blog. The best thing for you to do for me, if you like this show would be to go to iTunes and rate it five stars, type in a little bit of a review and then subscribe. That would help me tremendously. And I really appreciate you being here. Until next time, I'm Anthony Annarino, and I will see you in the arena. There's no way we're getting out of this podcast without me pitching my new book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, being published by Portfolio on October 11th, 2016. Right now, I've done something that no one else has ever done. I've delivered a package of bulk buy bonuses for you that are actual value, that have never been delivered before, and that are going to help you transform your own personal results and the results of your team. And I want to take 30 seconds and tell you what is inside the book. Inside the book is two sections. One section is about mindset. So it's about behaviors and beliefs and attitudes. And the second half of the book is skills. And what this is essentially is a deficiency model. So any area where you might need to improve to succeed in sales is in this book. Maybe it's your discipline. Maybe it's your attitude. Maybe it's your resourcefulness. Maybe you need help closing. Maybe you need help prospecting or developing your business acumen. It's all in there. So right now, go to preorder.theonlysalesguide.com and you're gonna be able to download a couple chapters. In one of those chapters, you're going to find the table of contents, which will describe to you all of the attributes and all of the skills you need to succeed in sales now. This book will make you better. This book will help you grow. This book will help you develop into a trusted advisor, a consultative salesperson, and somebody who wins new business. So go check it out, preorder.theonlysalesguide.com. Look for the bonuses and do send me a note and let me know how you like the book. Go pick up the book now. I promise you're going to love it and you're going to be transformed. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.